New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. As some of us seek to reconnect with our non-human neighbors, totems provide a bridge between us and the rest of the natural world. They're intermediaries between their species and everything else in the world, humans included. They can be allies as we reclaim our connection to nature. Our guest today cautions us to understand that totems, whether they be animal, plants, or fungi, are not simply one-dimensional helpers limited to stereotype meanings from dictionaries. They are vibrant, intelligent, dynamic beings sharing the world with us as much as anyone else. And while we may have forgotten what it is to be in nature's community, they have not. Today we'll be exploring how connecting with animal or plant totems can enhance our spiritual life and help us reconnect with the natural world with our guest, Lupa. Lupa is a neo-shaman, artist, and sustainability geek. She has been working with animal magic for more than 20 years and has developed a self-created and spirit-directed neo-shamanic path. She possesses a master's degree in counseling psychology with an emphasis on eco-psychology. She's the author of many books, including Plant and Fungus Totems, New Paths to Animal Totems, and Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Totems in Your Ecosystem. Join us for the next hour as we explore how totems can help us rejoin the community of nature with our guest, Lupa. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Lupa, welcome. Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. Before we start talking about totems, I want to begin with your saying something. I know that you encourage us first to really understand our ecosystem. And this is maybe the first step in finding our totems. So please say something about what are the benefits of reconnecting with our ecosystem? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, there are a number of benefits uh, to reconnecting with our ecosystem. When most people talk about nature, they're referring to anything that isn't human. So we may look at a bird out in the parking lot and say that's nature, but the parking lot itself isn't. The problem with that is that as we have perceived ourselves as being separate from the rest of nature, 
we felt less intimate and connected with it. And I think that's really contributed to our feeling it's okay to destroy the rest of nature. And so from a very practical, big picture view, the desire and the need to reconnect and to perceive ourselves as being connected is a part of our fundamental survival, both us as humans and us as part of a bigger community. On a more personal level, there are a number of health benefits to feeling more connected to the rest of nature. If we go and walk outside, even if it's just in a little grassy strip or a small park, even just getting a good look at the blue sky outside, there are studies showing that these exposures lower the blood pressure, uh, lower our heart rate, lower our stress level, increasing our sense of well-being, and generally give us a good all-over feeling. We evolved for millions of years in wide open spaces. And so we haven't had the time to really adjust to being in four walls. So it's still good for us to get back to what our bodies and our minds are used to. On a spiritual level, whether working with totems or other nature spirits, it's very important for us to understand the context in which they exist. A totem doesn't just float over your head waiting for you to pay attention to it. They have their own ecosystem they inhabit. They have their own priorities and things that they do caring for their physical counterparts. And their work with us is as an extension of caring for their own children, as it were. So those are just a few of the reasons to reach back out to the rest of nature on both a macro and a micro level. I was interested, there was something that you mentioned uh, in your writing, which was there was some research done that shows that looking at a, a, a TV screen, let's say, uh, that's showing a picture of nature or looking at your computer screen or, or a picture or whatever, is the, the, the brain is not fooled. It reacts to that, looking at it through technology in a different way than actually looking out your window at a scene or being out in nature at a real, at, at, at really a more direct con contact with nature. Uh, yes, that was a, that was a, actually an environmental psychology study done uh, a few years back. And what happened was they went to a hospital and they had, some rooms that looked out onto a natural scene. They had other rooms that had a, a very realistic plasma TV that had a live feed of that exact same scene. And then there were rooms that just looked out onto a parking lot or a brick wall, I forget which. And the results were that the people who had the view of the actual you know, green space recovered most quickly. The people who had the plasma TV didn't have a significantly better recovery rate than the people who are looking at a brick wall. So we know there's a difference. We can tell. We're not fooled. Again, it's that those millions of years of evolution, uh, you can't get over that that quickly. Right. Okay. So 
what are some of the suggestions that you would have when you say to get to know your ecosystem or uh, what are some of the suggestions you have to help us get to know it? There are a couple of different avenues you can take, and a lot of it depends on your uh, everything from physical ability to your time to how safe the place that you live in is. You can break it down into two sections. There's the academic section, which is where you do research and reading about your local ecosystem or your local bioregion. And that's everything from buying field guides to the various, you know, flora, fauna, and fungi, to reading up on the geological history of your area, to studying the weather patterns, to knowing about the indigenous people, basically getting to know the place you live on a number of different levels. And that's something you can do from the, from the comfort of your own home. You can buy books. There's plenty of websites out there. And it's a really great option for those who may not always have the ability to go running around outside for hours at a time. On the other hand, if you do have the time and ability, it's great to go outside and literally or figuratively get your hands in the dirt. A lot of the exercises that I talk about in Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up involve being outside or at least looking out a window on the outside world. There is no substitute for direct contact with the rest of nature on some level. And so I generally recommend, if it's possible, to use both of those. You have the theory in your books and websites, which gives you a scaffolding, but then you fill in the spaces with the vibrant experience of actually being out there. I know that there's something that you mention in in doing this, that there's something that happens when we're out in nature as opposed to being in, um, a, a let's say, an urban setting where, where we're just like just constantly amped up for um, just being filled with all sorts of images. And we get rather addicted to that, maybe. I, 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 at least in my case, I can see my, my addiction to that amped up. But you talk about something called um, soft focus, or uh, is it soft focus? Or soft, soft fascination. Soft fascination that happens in nature. What, what do you mean by that term? Uh, that's actually uh, out of eco-psychology again, uh, researchers Kaplan and Kaplan. And it's a term that they came up with to describe the way our attention is focused when we're in a more wilderness or less human-dominated area. When we're in an urban environment or an otherwise very human-dominated environment, our attention is being wrenched side to side from place to place. If we're driving, we have to make sure we don't hit the other cars around us. We have to make sure that we're not going to run a red light. We have to know where we're going. It's very exhausting. If you've driven in you know, rush hour traffic for an hour, you get home, you're just, ugh, even if you felt fine when you got in the car in the first place. That's hard fascination. Soft fascination is where your attention is allowed to more organically and gently shift from thing to thing to thing. So you can pay attention to that bird that's singing over there and then go look at that flower. And there's a choice to it and there's a flow to it. And it's unless it's something ridiculously improbable, like a mountain lion is looking at you like your lunch— 
you don't really have to have that amped up and adrenaline-fueled experience. So I, I know that you say something about um, how spirituality is not separate from the physical world. Mm-hmm. Describe that to us. This is something, uh, when I tell people things that I experience that I teach, I always let people know that it's from my own perspective and people are able to disagree with me as much as they like. To my perspective, personally, there is no division between the physical and the spiritual. Everything to me is sacred. Everything to me is imbued with life. It is a form of animism. And it is that, again, that that sense of connection. I was raised Catholic, and there's that very strong dichotomy, especially post-Descartes, uh, between the physical and the spiritual. And that never really sat well with me because the place that I always felt the closest to God, however you want to term God, was when I was outside, not when I was in church. And if I could feel that sacredness when I was laying in the grass and the moss under a juniper tree in my yard, that had to say something. So as I've gotten older and had more time to explore that, it's become clear to me personally that I can't separate those two. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Lupa. She is the author of Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up. Connect with totems in your ecosystem. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, thegreenwolf.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Lupa, and she is the author of Nature, Spirituality from the Ground Up. Connect with totems in your ecosystem. So, Lupa, let's start talking about totems. And what do you mean by totems? All right. So, I want to make something very, very clear. When a lot of people think totems, they think indigenous American cultural practices. And that is where our common concept of totems came from. The term totem is actually derived from the Ojibwe language. What indigenous people, both in the Americas and elsewhere, would term totems or something similar to totems 
is not what I talk about in my practice. My practice is very much what I call white girl from the Midwest practice <laughs> because that's what I am. I was a military brat. I was born in Germany. We moved to the U.S. when I was very young. And I did most of my growing up in Texas and then mostly in Missouri. And that's where I had my experiences in nature where I first discovered the totems and began working with them. I didn't have any formal teachers. I didn't have a tradition that I was part of. What I had was a few books just to give me some ideas. And then most of it was just me working with these beings day after day, inviting them into my life and working out my own system of being with them. So when I talk about a totem, what I'm referring to is I'm referring to an archetypal being that embodies all of the qualities of a given species of animal or plant or fungus or other living being. And there are also geological totems of various stones and so forth. But it's an archetypal being that embodies everything about that sort of being. So in, in other words, you have an experience of them. You're, most of us, when we, we think of totems— me included, until I really delved into your work, you might get a deck of cards and they might have all sorts of animal totems and and you say, okay, which one is my totem? And you pull a card and that's it. Or, or, or you might be really attracted to, like I was born in the year of the horse and horses were always important in my life. So I might say, well, my totem is the horse. But you're coming at it differently. You're you're coming at it where where somebody would need to to actually do a deep meditation and invite in. And best is to be out in nature when you're doing it, maybe, and going to a, a particular spot that it calls to you and doing a special meditation and and calling in the energy of this totem, and um, it could surprise you. It might be something that you're, you're not, you had never even thought of, and you may not even be attracted to. So can you say something about that whole process? Yeah, that's probably the biggest question I get when I'm talking about totemism, is how do I find my totems? Every single species has a totem. Some people are fortunate enough in that they just know intuitively at least one of their totems. In my case, Grey Wolf came to me when I was very, very young. And even though I didn't know what a totem was at the time, it still managed to guide me along and teach me as I grew. And then when I finally discovered this term, it's like, oh, that's what that was. Okay. So then I was able to use my work with Grey Wolf to formulate ways to work with other totems. And so I tend to be, I'm very much a specialist. I've worked with hundreds of totems over the years and everything from long-term work, you know, improving myself, improving the world, all the way up to single, you know, rituals where I've asked for a bit of help in making my will come into the world. And... There are cases where, yes, people do know their totems instinctively from an early age, and that's okay. That's one way to do it. 
if you don't have that or if you want to work with others. The limitations of a totem deck is that there are only so many animals, plants, and so forth in there. What happens if the totem that's trying to contact you is Thompson's gazelle, which lives in in Africa, but the closest animal in your deck is the pronghorn antelope, completely different creature. My personal method that I advocate and which I teach in my works uses guided meditation. It's a very open-ended guided meditation. It's not a matter of, well, first you go here in the meditation and then you talk to this totem and the totem says this and then totem says that and you say this. It's not that scripted. It's the fairly standard meditation you may have run into in writings about totemism where you go into, imagine going into a tunnel in the ground and you go through this tunnel and you come out into a natural place. It can be a field, a forest, an ocean, a beach, but you come out in that place and you wander through it and if things go well, you find the totem who's trying to get in touch with you. You have that conversation And you can always go back to that place in later meditations to speak with them and work with them. And if if you are um, working with them, you you might ask different questions such as, um, um, what I'm trying to say is that you— you are advocating that we we don't just— ask for help from our totems, but that we are help to our totems. That's a major shift in the way we think about totems because oftentimes when we have a totem, we'll ask them, oh, please help me to do this or that or help me with this um, job interview or help me through this illness or help me through this grief or whatever it is. But you are saying that that's fine, but there's more to it. It's like you really encourage us to be of help, to ask how how we can be of help to our totem and to that species. Yes, and that is something that I came to the conclusion of fairly early on. There is absolutely nothing wrong with working with totems and other allies in bettering yourself whether that's physically, psychologically, spiritually, relationship-wise, however you need help in your life. It's like having any other ally or friend in your life. It's, It's a relationship. But like any relationship, it needs to go both ways. In my personal experience, we are not the totem's biggest priorities. A totem's biggest priority is its own physical counterparts. Gray Wolf is most concerned with the health and well-being of gray wolves on this planet. However, because we are the most destructive and widespread species on this planet, we have the most potential to help or destroy other species, it behooves gray wolf and other totems to reach out to us to help us become healthier as a species. So on an individual level, what I advocate for is, yes, help yourself. Let the totems help you become better, but also ask them how you can give back, how you can help their species, and more importantly, how you can help the species' habitats. What people don't realize 
is that habitat destruction, whether it's from mining or logging or suburban sprawl, where farmland is being destroyed by housing and so forth, all that habitat destruction is the single biggest cause of species extinction and endangerment. So even if we just help the land itself, we are doing something to give back. So that's part of uh, also understanding our bioregion, mm-hmm. uh, understanding what is what is going on in it and what what was the natural landscape maybe 500 years ago and how has it changed and and what are the invasive species that have been introduced into it and these are some of the things that that you suggest that we understand can you say something about that yes so your bioregion is an area of land often but not always the watershed of the biggest river in your area. And it all has a similar climate, a similar geological makeup. The plants, animals, and fungi are pretty similar. Uh, If you've ever been on a long road trip, you'll notice you can tell when you shift from one bioregion to the next because the landscape changes very drastically. So the reason you want to get to know that bioregion better in all of its parts is because we have changed it so dramatically in many cases. One of the best offerings you can make to any nature spirit is working toward the restoration of its landscape, of the bioregion. And for example, I do a good bit of volunteering with habitat restoration. So removing invasive species, planting native ones, removing pollutants. And it's one of the most effective ways to help everybody involved. You know, uh, I remember years ago, we did an interview with Gary Snyder, and towards the end of the interview, Michael Thomas was doing the the interview. He said, well, what can we, what do you suggest we can do most to help our environment? And he said, get to know your watershed. And that stuck with me. And I, I'm proud to say that where I live, there, there are signs, the actual road signs that say, you are now entering the Russian River watershed. And, uh, you know, we have these, these signs that remind us, that actually remind us, this is a watershed. This is an ecological zone that we live in. It's not just parking lots and shopping malls, that we're living in a zone that's connected to the earth. And I think in these times, you might look at, like, looking at your watershed. Where for, for right now, it's 2016. What's really in the news is Flint, Michigan. And, and talk about a watershed, you know, where they're getting their water and it's being diverted and people are, are getting sick. And, and so it's kind of up in the news that to know where is your water coming from and, and is it healthy? And what can you say about that? Water is the basis of life on this planet. It doesn't matter how good our atmosphere is. It doesn't matter how firm the earth is. If we do not have water, there is no life. And if you've never done any kind of bioregional work before, the single best starting place, if you can't think of anything else, is to find out where the rain goes. 
Think about, you can even imagine a raindrop falling and thinking about what its journey is. Where does it flow from your yard into maybe the storm sewer and then down into the stream and then the river and then the ocean and then it evaporates and comes back to another storm system. Thinking about that cycle and what affects that raindrop along the way from pollutants to dams to uh, droughts that cause too much evaporation is a great starting point. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Lupa. She is the author of Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up. Connect with totems in your ecosystem. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Lupa, and she is the author of Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Your Totems in Your Ecosystem. And we were just talking about water, and it just reminds me when you say to know to know where your water goes in, in the way that we've paved everything over, we've paved over creeks, uh, some townships are opening that up and uncovering that but 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 from the most part they they're just our water runs off when we're in an urban area and i'm thinking about the work at uc davis which is university of california davis which is near sacramento and it's a very dry region there in the sacramento valley uh the and it what they've done there from what i understand is they've they've worked out natural ways of collecting water and keeping it and having it seep into the ground. They do something called swales, and and these are things, uh, mounds and, and different, I, I, I can't describe them. You can look it up on the internet, but, but it, it collects water and it allows it to just seep into the soil and it doesn't just run off. So the, these are some of the things that we need to be aware of, would you say? I think so, yes. One of the, one of the unfortunate side effects of the work that we've done for things like public health and cleanliness and making sure that water is accessible to everyone is that unfortunately our techniques have not always taken uh, their long-term effects on the rest of the environment into account. And so now we're having to backtrack and re-engineer things so that we are still getting the water we need so that everybody has their water and that's clean and effective, but also to where we're not destroying the sources of those water. A good example is rivers. Many, many, many rivers and streams have been straightened out because of trying to avoid flood damage or to control it for agriculture or to make it more convenient for development. The problem when you straighten out a stream is that those bends in the stream serve several functions. They slow the water down 
so that's not running too quickly and kicking up mud. They provide very important uh, wildlife habitat, and they create natural boundaries. They, they basically show where the water needs to flow. They are at the low point. And so when we straighten that stream out, we're taking away all of those effective uh, side effects that make the river work the way it's supposed to work as an ecosystem. You know, Lupa, you talk about uh, one of your totems that came to you early on was a gray wolf. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about how the gray wolf has been reintroduced into Yellowstone. And what they found, I, I've, somebody sent me this on the internet, what they found is that the, by the gray wolf being back in Yellowstone, it has helped the health of the entire environment and most mostly the, the streams. So can you say how they've helped the streams? Yes. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen that video, but I believe it had to do with the patterns of grazing and browsing by elk and other large ungulates, as well as the behavior of the beavers in the area, all of which have an effect on erosion uh, and the river. So just by bringing in the large predators that kept these herbivorous animals in check and kept them moving, that's returned the river and its plant life to its original form and allowed the river to stop being changed so unnecessarily quickly. That's a, it's very interesting when people people are afraid of we have the big bad wolf you know we have this mythology of the big bad wolf and you know I'm thinking of that that movie that was done many years ago uh, written by Farley Mowat and it was called Never Cry Wolf and it was such an in, uh, an enlightenment about the wolves and the research that he did was that wolves. They, they're not a terrible, terrible species, but they actually benefit life. And, and mostly their diet was small rodents like mice. Do you, do you recall that movie? Um, well, I want to give a bit of a caveat. I don't mean to be a downer. Sure. But Farley Mowat was actually discredited uh, for fictionalizing a lot of his research. He did do a lot to improve the reputation of wolves. Some of what he had... Uh, talked about is true to an extent. Wolves do eat a fair number of small creatures, particularly during summer. Mm -hmm. However, they are still heavily predatory on larger prey. And regardless of whether it's Farley Mowat or Barry Holston Lopez or any of a number of other researchers, what they're finding is that they are absolutely crucial to their ecosystem. That is a big part of the reason why with even the spiritual ecosystem— I really recommend to people that they get to know not just the totem that they're working with, but the totems of the species associated with it. So, for example, if I'm working with gray wolf, I may also work with elk or bison. I may also work with lemming or whatever other small creature that wolves prey on in that area. And I'm working with the totems of the of some of the plants and the fungi endemic to that particular ecosystem because they're all dependent on each other just as their physical counterparts are. And I can learn a lot more from that. 
And, you know, you mentioned plants and fungi. Um, we have a plant blindness that when we think about totems, we're thinking about mostly um, mammals, I, I think, for the most part, or, or maybe birds. Or, but, but we're not thinking about plants. But you, you mentioned a lot about plants and fungi as the possibility of, of our coordinating our efforts with these, these species. Yeah, and that's plant blindness is another eco-psychological term. Um, it refers to the general tendency to see plants as just part of the landscape as opposed to being vibrant living beings on their own. One of my favorite documentaries ever was uh, David Attenborough's The Private Life of Plants. And it's amazing because he shows how plants compete with each other, how they communicate. And I'm not talking about uh, primary perception, which is this idea that they have EKG <laughs> readings and so forth, which was right. discredited. I'm talking about really solid evidence of how plants communicate through chemicals, through the fungal my mycelial network in the soil, uh, through touch. They can't see, but they can still be sensitive to light. And so their totems, the totems of plants and also the totems of fungi, which are a completely different kingdom from either animals or plants, their perspectives are different because the, their, their priorities in the world are different. But we can still learn quite a bit from them. And there's a lot we do need to learn from them because they are just as integral as we are to the world. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that, and I want to bring something into our conversation, and that is a it it's a an interview we did many many years ago with someone Bill Mollison, and Bill was born in Tasmania. He's a scientist, naturalist, and activist, and he's regarded as the originator of the term permaculture. And when we did this interview many years ago, it's uh, in our uh, program library, uh, program number 2564, in case anybody wants to look it up. Um, he's being uh, interviewed by Neil Harvey, and he, he's talking about trees. And he says, I just want to read a little bit of this. I brought this transcript, uh, hoping that I could share it with our listeners. Uh, Bill says, I think trees are big translators that stand between earth and air, and it takes the light, makes sugar, and bribes the bacteria, and bribes the fungi with sugar. It sends its roots to bring minerals into the tree so that the hydrogen ions and minerals stream into the tree roots. So this huge trade is going on up and down the tree, sugars down, minerals up, and the fungi work for the tree for sugar and bacteria. So there's this incredible business going on, and you can't believe all the things that are happening. And then the tree drops its leaves. It makes this big present of food to the earth, which eats it and turns it into black soil. And then out it comes again, and and the earth keeps bribing it to keep going, and they are all sort of talking to each other. If one tree is damaged, like a beetle comes along to lay eggs, it sends out a distress signal 
This is very specific for that species. They're all living in relation to each other. And Bill goes on to say later, he says, I don't understand trees, and I keep looking at them and thinking about them. It's just an incredible amount of work that they are doing. A lot of people think they are just sitting there. They're not. They're talking to each other. They're in relation to hundreds of other plants. Thousands of species depend on them. And there are so many things that serve them. The job of animals and birds is to serve trees. And he ends this excerpt. He says, so whatever you do, don't cut it down. I think the great value of these systems is that they are good teachers and you can be a student. It doesn't take a lot of effort. Not often the teacher gives you the apple every day. So that's a little bit of that excerpt that I wanted to share because it's such a magnificent view of oh, just what one tree does. It, it, it serves just thousands of, of species and does lots of work. So do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I think that's a really good illustration of the almost mind-boggling intricacy of the interconnection of species in a single ecosystem. When we try to recreate ecosystems, it's very difficult because we can we can do things like plant trees and reintroduce animals. But there's not much in the way of, for example, how do you recondition the soil with its native fungi if they weren't already in there? What do you do about the microbes? And just because you put the tree in there doesn't mean that it's going to automatically fix things. I was at the Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge earlier last week, and while they've done a lot of beautiful work with restoration of this of this former farmland to a beautiful wetland and planted a lot of native species, they also have some very old eucalyptus trees that were used as a windbreak back when it was farmland. And while the eucalyptus isn't as actively detrimental to an ecosystem the way that, for example, English ivy is, it's still not the native tree, and it doesn't support the same number of species as a native tree would. That's why when you're doing landscaping and you plant a non-native species, it just isn't the same. I'm here with Lupa. She's the author of Nature, Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Your Totems in Your Ecosystem. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Lupa, and she is the author of Nature Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Your Totems in Your Ecosystem. And we're talking about really getting to know our ecosystem and calling in the totems, the species that live there and being partners with them in some way. So um, I, I know that you talk about, Lupa, how we may work with our totems, and you talk about three practices that we can do to invite our totems into a deeper relationship and the the practice of place, the practice of action, and the practice of celebration. And in the practice of place, you talk about grounding and power spots. So can you say a little bit about what grounding means and what you mean by power spots? Yeah, um, grounding is basically energetically connecting to a place. We each have an energy to us. And grounding is basically the same. uh, The term was taken from uh, electrical grounding, where you're plugging something into an electrical socket. It has that third plug bit that grounds the wires so that the energy is better focused. So when we ground in a place, we are taking our energy and melding it with the energy of that place. When I feel ungrounded, I almost feel like I'm sort of floating haphazardly. I can't focus my thoughts. Maybe I have a bit of a headache. It especially happens if I've been under a lot of stress or if I've been under too many people's you know, attention for too long and I just need to have some quiet time. So I will go outside and I will visualize my energy sinking down into the soil and becoming a part of it and becoming a part of that harmonious ecosystem that I keep forgetting that I'm a part of. And you even use the word gravity. You, you, you become aware of the pull of the earth itself on our human body. Yeah, that's we take that for granted. We forget that every single thing we do is governed by some natural force. And so when we allow the power of gravity to draw us down in a conscious manner, as well as the way that we don't even pay attention to, that's a powerful force in bringing us back to Earth, literally. Exactly. And what do you mean by uh, power spots? What, what is that? So again, my perspective on power spots tends to differ a bit from what most people have, ta- have written about and talked about. Some people talk about a power spot as a place that seems to have an especially notable energy that everybody notices. Uh, Sedona is a good example. Mount Shasta is a good example. Places that have often been considered sacred or otherwise noteworthy by people for many, many years. My take on power spots is a lot more personal. It doesn't always have to be a place that is particular to other people. It can be a place that is very special to you. I maintain in my own home, in my bedroom, I, ma- I maintain what I call a place altar. And it's atop of one of my old dressers. And I have small mementos from all of my power spots. Some of them are places I've gone to numerous times. 
Some of them are places that I've only been to once or twice, but that I connected to very deeply and that I always feel that I can go back to and ground myself in, in a particularly strong manner. But just as with the totems, it's not just what I get. There are also places that I feel a great deal of responsibility for. A great example is Malheur uh, National Wildlife Refuge out in eastern Oregon, where for 41 days there were a number of militants occupying it at the beginning of the year. I've only been there a couple of times, but the place and I connected very deeply And I feel it's a very healing place for me. And I have just been waiting for these people to leave and then for the FBI to collect their evidence there and then go away so we can get the green light for volunteers to go in and clean the place up. Because these people did damage. And I am angry. And I am hurt. Because that is a power spot for me and for a lot of other people to include the Burns Paiute, who are indigenous to that area. So that's one example of a personal power spot that's that happens to be shared. Uh, I, I want to say something. I want to go back to totems for a moment. Are, are totems a figment of our imagination, or are they an actual energy source? What, what can you say about that? So when it comes to theology, spirituality— Etc. Theistically, I consider myself to be an I don't careist. <laughs> By that, I mean I acknowledge that there are totems that I work with and that they fit some of the same patterns that other people use to describe these beings. However, I am not personally invested either way as to whether they are literal or as to whether they are an elaborate part of my psyche expressing itself through natural symbols. So basically, I don't really care whether someone else believes that they're literal beings or just, you know, Jungian archetype extensions. As long as your work with them is effective and reciprocal and fosters that reconnection, more power to you. I love it. I love it. So so if it enhances your life, uh, go for it. Mm-hmm. And, and don't worry about, as you say, the theology of it. Uh, so it's, it's not important uh, to, to know one way or another. It's just whether it's effective for you. I, I like that. So uh, there was something else that you mentioned in— and um, that I really loved, and it's about, in, in your writing, it's about connecting with the animal part of our own bodies. And you, you talk about a couple of things like going to sleep, and you connect that with, that is our animal body wanting to sleep, or cuddling is another one. And animals frequently join together, and you see the puppy piles, or you see little piles of rabbits, you know, in their little warren or whatever. Uh, so say something about that, that, that part of us that, are, that is part of nature. Well, it's, it's all of us, really. We just forget that. And... We are mammals, we are Homo sapiens sapiens, and we have the, for the most part, we have, this, we have shared DNA with pretty much every living being on Earth. We are very mammalian in our tendencies, we are social mammals, 
we're very we like touch, we like good touch, we we shy away from pain. And on a more basic level, we eat, we sleep, we move, we have metabolism. Unfortunately, we've also learned to be really uncomfortable in our own skins, especially in American society. We're so weird about our bodies. We don't like our bodies. We want our bodies to not age. We want them to not be messy. We don't really want to think about them. We're very cerebral. And in that section that you're talking about, it's one of my favorite parts of the book because I'm inviting people to remember you're a mammal and that's totally okay. So when you're doing these little everyday things, like when you go to sleep, imagine, for example, a squirrel going into hibernation or imagine your cat curled up in a sunbeam. You're doing the exact same thing. If you're eating, no matter what it is you're eating, whether it's kale or chicken or peanuts or whatever it is that you're eating, remember that there are also other animals out there eating very much the same things. There are bugs out in my garden chewing on the kale. There is a raccoon who is going after chickens in somebody's coop. And we're joined in that because we all have those same needs. And it's a really great and immediate way to remind ourselves that we're still a part of nature, no matter how much we try to deny it. And I just love it that you mentioned hugging. Like, it, it goes back to that need for that touch. And when we hug another, it's it's an animal need for, for touch. Uh, so I, I, I just love that. I'd love to have you um, go out sharing some idea of what it is to add wonder and awe or to connect with wonder and awe and why this is such an important part of our lives. So wonder and awe is a phrase that I frequently use to describe my motivation in my spirituality and my life in general. I'm 37 years old. It's been you know, almost 20 years since I left the public school system. I've had a couple stints in college getting degrees. But I found as I've got older, there are fewer and fewer encouragements to be curious about the world around us. And I think that's one of the biggest detriments to us and our ability to survive. We, we, we evolved such a keen sense of curiosity, and it's part of what made us what we are because we were willing to take risks, we were willing to explore, and we're just dulling that by not using it. it. It dulls with use. So I encourage people to look at the world with new eyes. For example, gravity. I'm sitting here in this chair because of gravity. That's amazing. There's this invisible force that's keeping me from floating up and hitting the ceiling. That's awesome. I can walk outside and look at the cherry trees in, in the front of my apartment building and look at them photosynthesizing. I may not actually see the process, but I can look at those leaves and the sunshine and realize that that tree is turning sunshine into food that I'm eventually going to eat when those cherries come out. And we take all that for granted. But if we look at the world with wonder and awe, it all becomes magic again. I want to thank you so much, Lupa, for being with us today. Thank you. I really appreciated uh, speaking with you today. I've been here with Lupa. She's the author of Nature, Spirituality from the Ground Up, Connect with Totems in Your Ecosystem. 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3573. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.